At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. American novelist Edith Wharton was one of the great chroniclers of the Gilded Age. She captured a world that is often wildly romanticized, but she shows us that below the surface beauty and the glitter in the gold, there were dark and often irreparable implications and conclusions. Edith Wharton was born in New York City in 1862 at the height of the Civil War, and she died at her home outside of Paris in 1937, just before World War II broke out in Europe. Despite her early years spent growing up in that very closed, restricted, regulated society about which she wrote so critically, she chose to leave both it and America and settle for the last third of her life permanently in France. But as Wharton grew older, she returned with increasing regularity to New York in her mind and in her fiction. And following World War I, she wrote perhaps her finest work, The Age of Innocence. Wharton's literary output was extraordinary. She published over 50 books, over 20 novels and novellas, and in addition to fiction, she published works of travel writing, poetry, war reporting, landscape architecture, and interior design. To many, perhaps, her most familiar works are her 1920 novel, The Age of Innocence, and her dramatic novella set against a stark New England backdrop, Ethan Frome. But those only represent a part of what Edith Wharton had to say. Edith Wharton, as a writer and as a woman, was complex, held many layers of insight and perception, and tackled some social as well as very human conditions and situations that perhaps weren't so innocent at all. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Wharton's masterpiece, The Age of Innocence, like Edith herself, exists in many layers. There is irony in its very title, and it requires a look deep beneath the surface of the plot to understand just what Wharton is showing us. The story is set in the early Gilded Age New York of the 1870s. It centers on a young New York lawyer from old Knickerbocker society, Newland Archer, on the verge of marrying Mae Welland, a young woman of good family and similar background, a supposedly perfect match. 
May's cousin and an old childhood friend of Newland's, Ellen Olenska, enters the scene. She is now a countess having married a European aristocrat and after a disastrous and scandalous marriage has returned to New York to reconnect with a family, a city, and a society that ultimately judges and even expels her. The backdrop Wharton creates for us is the beginning of America's Gilded Age, and she paints an extraordinarily detailed portrait of that world with intricate details of architecture, fashion, food, and social etiquette to recreate and ultimately translate for us just what this suffocating society really meant. In the Age of Innocence, Wharton gives us one of her most emotionally charged love triangles and ultimately a novel of chances, both taken and lost, resignation, duty, love perhaps unfulfilled, and overall, what can often be life's ambiguities with often unsettling attempts at resolution. Joining me today is author and scholar Dr. Emily Orlando, and we'll take a close look at The Age of Innocence, the novel itself, but we're also going to delve into why Wharton wrote it when she did, what it meant to her, and we'll also take a look at some other examples of her work that illuminate her as a woman and as a writer. Dr. Emily J. Orlando is the E. Gerald Corrigan Endowed Chair in the Humanities and Social Sciences and Professor of English at Fairfield University. Dr. Orlando is the editor most recently of the Bloomsbury Handbook to Edith Wharton, published in 2023, and has published widely in 19th and 20th century literature and culture. She is the author of the award-winning book, Edith Wharton and the Visual Arts, and co-editor with Meredith Goldsmith of the essay collection, Edith Wharton and Cosmopolitanism. A past president of the Edith Wharton Society, she curated the Wharton installation for the American Writers Museum in Chicago, which focused on the Age of Innocence. She is currently preparing for publication a new edition of Edith Wharton's first book, The Decoration of Houses. Emily, it is such a complete honor to have you join me today for The Gilded Gentleman. Not only are you a complete Wharton expert, but you share your insight and your knowledge through all your writing and your teaching. We've been chatting back and forth for months now, and I am so incredibly honored to have you right here with me at the table to share this episode. Well, the honor and the pleasure is truly all mine. So thank you so much for for allowing me to be with you today. I'm so excited. And we have a lot to talk about. We do. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, let's let's dive in. And let's just start by putting the Age of Innocence in context a bit for listeners here. So let's begin with when Edith Wharton wrote The Age of Innocence. She wrote it in 1919, going into 1920, and then it was published at the end of, of 1920. And then she won the Pulitzer Prize for it in 1921. So Emily, just where was Wharton in her life when she wrote The Age of Innocence, and, and why did she write it when she did? So literally, Edith Wharton is, of course, as you said, she's living in France at the time, and she's dividing her time between two properties. She's spending a lot of time in Yer. She's looking to own a home there, which she will do by the time she wins the prize, by the way. And she's also living in a magnificent estate outside of Paris called Pavillon 
Cologne. She is an American expatriate. She's divorced. She divorces in April of 1913 and removed herself permanently to France. And I think it's fun and important to note that she got there before it was really kind of the cool thing to do, you know, before Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Sherwood Anderson. Uh, and so she's there. She's first in Paris, but again, she removes herself out to the countryside. So she's around 57 years old when she's writing this novel. She's famous, and, I, and that's important for our listeners to understand. Like, she's really famous by the time The House of Mirth really puts her on the map as a, a master novelist of New York, uh, and that's 1905, and she's lived through World War One. She's uh, she's very unusual insofar as she's she's like literally like working on the front lines and support of the Allies. She's looking back at her girlhood in New York, but very realistically, she's not romanticizing it. I think it's important to note that she's the same age that our hero Newland Archer is at the end of the book. She's 57. There's a kind of nostalgia. For for a lost New York that she abandoned. And there's also arguably a nostalgia for a lost Paris that she also abandoned. Um, and that's represented at the end of the book. I think it's important to note that she's incredibly prolific. She's been um, writing prose and she's been writing fiction. She's been writing travel writing, French ways and their meaning comes out in 1919 in Morocco is right around the time of this novel. She's she's written Fighting France uh, 1915. So, I mean, she's just a woman of incredible, enormous energy and capacity and discipline. And again, she's famous, but she's looking back to, as you said, the 1870s of New York, the let's say, the New York of her childhood. And I think that's such an interesting moment in her life because she's actually just lived through World War One, and she grew up really in Europe as, as a child for a number of years. Her parents took her to Europe, and she developed such a European sensibility, and she comes back to New York, and the New York that she sees as a 10-year-old girl is this construction pit, basically, right? Yes. And she has this European sensibility and these European values, which nearly were all destroyed in World War one, right? So do you think it's accurate to say that this sense of nostalgia and looking back on her childhood is one of trying to recreate something stable or some sense of beauty? How do you interpret that? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think that she's she's looking back meditatively. She's approaching her 60s. But I think that there are some things that she's mourning the, the loss of. It's really crystallized nicely in the last couple pages of this novel, you know, through the consciousness of Newland Archer. He acknowledges that there was good in the old ways, and there certainly there was. But as, as we'll talk about later, there's also incredible social violence <laughs> and excommunication. There's also as Newland Archer acknowledges, and the direct quote is, there's good in the new order too. That's acknowledged in Newland Archer's younger daughter, more carefree, called Mary. So I don't think that she's sad that this New York is gone. I think it's, I think it's just complicated. As it always is when one looks back, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I imagine that. And what's extraordinary is, so she's writing this in 1919, 1920. She's actually trying to recreate a world, and we'll talk about this in more detail, of the 1870s when she was just a very young child. Mm -hmm. And 
I think there are some extraordinary reasons why she is so detailed in this novel, but I promise you we will. I promise you, my listeners, we will all get to that. So, Emily, Age of Innocence is certainly one of Wharton's most famous works, certainly due to the Pulitzer Prize, but also the Martin Scorsese adaptation, the film, which was done in 1993, which we'll also talk about. So do you feel do you feel that Age of Innocence is her masterpiece? And if you do, why do you think so? You know, I do. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about this book. Um, and I mean, I, I'm a strong advocate for The House of Mirth as a novel that, like, and I say this a lot, there's not a bad sentence in that novel. And I would say the same of this. But I, I will say that what distinguishes this novel is the really well-earned love that it has earned from very prolific, decorated, contemporary writers today. And I give, for example, so Roxane Gay and Ta-Nehisi Coates have both uh, singled out this novel as one has called it perfect. Uh, the other um, has called it, you know, playfully the age of awesome, right? But And the best novel that he had ever read. And, and what I do think is key is that if, if one were trying to learn how to write a good novel, one should be looking at this book because it really uh, illustrates her whole theory of creative writing. She writes uh, wonderfully. When she's thinking about how she writes a novel, she says, my last page is latent in my first. So in other words, she knows exactly where this novel is going to going to go. And when you look at the first two chapters of this novel, it's all laid out. You get the triangle, you get the return of Ellen Olenska, you know, you get Neil and Archer reading, but let's say misreading these two women in his life. And I think that the closing of this novel is is perfect. It is perfection. <laughs> so I would call it a consummate work of art. And honestly, it's probably the only novel I've ever read in my life that found me crying at the end because it was so beautiful and I didn't want it to end. Not because I wasn't crying because of Newland Archer. <laughs> I mean, he built up his whole situation for himself, but but it was it was such an exquisite work of art aesthetically, let's say. And we're going to talk about the end too. So Emily, if someone, if a listener has not really read any Edith Wharton or certainly not very much, do you think The Age of Innocence is a good place to start to discover her? I would say unequivocally yes. I say I think it, and and when I am introducing adults to Edith Wharton, this is where I send them. Yes, I think it's a great place to start. Now, many people think of Wharton as a New York writer, and it's certainly true that she captured the city and its society, and she used it over her lifetime, both in major works and also some lesser-known works. I'd really love you to talk about that a little bit. Can you talk about when she first used New York? as a setting, and then why so much of her most significant New York work actually came later after the Age of Innocence. What was all that about? So Henry James has often been uh, credited for encouraging Edith Wharton to quote-unquote do New York. But as as we've discussed, she was already doing it. Certainly in her short story, she was writing about New York. The French writer Paul Bourget, who became a very dear friend of Edith Wharton's, actually had encouraged her to do the same before James did. It's wonderful that now we're at a point historically where Wharton is not always 
read in the same breath as Henry James, right? Now she's, she's really recognized as her own master. But the early short stories, 1891, the first published short story, Mrs. Manstey's View, Bonner Sisters, which is a brilliant but bleak novella. She writes that in the, the late 1890s, but it's not published until well after Ethan Frome is published because she's now famous. And these are all narratives of New York, but it's a more impoverished New York, right? It's a, it's a really kind of destitute New York. So it's like what I like to call Edith Wharton's other New York. But yeah, I mean, she's, to your point, she certainly is, is known for the New York novels. She masters it in the way that really nobody else does as social satire, in my humble opinion. She continues with this theme post-innocence. I would highlight in particular a well-kept secret called um, The Mother's Recompense, which is 1925, which is another love triangle that's also set against the backdrop of New York. And she's continuing this, and she's continuing. New York is always on the horizon for her. I think the whole comment to do New York was perhaps because her first her first novel was, and this is not a terribly well-known fact about Edith Wharton, but this is an 18th century historical novel, right? And that's before the House of Martha. It's called The Valley of Decision, right? And she's, of course, not doing New York there at all. <laughs> so we know her and we embrace her really as, um, as a master of New York in the novels, in the novellas, in the short stories as well. Now, in Age of Innocence, I mentioned this earlier, that she's incredibly detailed in Age of Innocence about fashion and architecture and locations. And this is really extraordinary because at this point, it's been nearly decades since she herself has lived in New York. And she has to recreate this world that much of her audience, when Age of Innocence comes out, wouldn't know. Why do you think she's so detailed and what is unique about her creation of New York in Age of Innocence? I mean, my sense is that while well, she's a lover of history, she's she has an encyclopedic mind. Her allusions are all across her fiction and her her nonfiction prose, and of course, let's throw in the poetry as well. I think it's important for us to note that she's a little bit noncommittal in the first sentence of the novel. She 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 says it's the early seventies, right? And and what's interesting to your point about the kind of historical allusions is that some critics came a little hard down on her because, oh, she mentioned Maupassant and Maupassant wasn't, you know, yet, you know, publishing short stories until a decade later. And the precise year of Middlemarch might not be accurate. But she she addresses this in her letters, which, by the way, I recommend any anyone interested in Wharton is in for a treat to look at her published letters. And she was very conscious of what she was doing. And she was she was deliberate in her lack of committal to precisely what year <laughs> we're talking about. But she really, she gets the art right, the literature right, the food, the fashion, as you said. And I would like to give a shout out to Catherine Jocelyn's wonderful book called um, Edith Wharton and the Making of Fashion. It gives us a whole new sense of Wharton. It's really deeply committed to fashion. I think that's a fascinating angle with which to, to look at Age of Innocence is through the fashion. I came to it through the food. I came as a food historian and really looking at when she describes a certain dish, and we're going to talk about a dinner scene coming up, she's very precise about what she says and why she says it. And it's true of the fashion. And just in rereading it in preparation for this show, I'm astonished at how many comments she makes about the way dresses are made and the, the fashion and the style and the cut. It's really... It's really extraordinary, right? I agree. 
And so with that, Emily and I are going to take a brief break, but we'll come back because there is so much more to say. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today I'm with Dr. Emily Orlando, and we are taking a deep dive into Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. Now, so many listeners will actually likely know The Age of Innocence through the Scorsese film adaptation. And my question is, well, what did you think of that translation to the screen? It seems... It's my observation that Wharton's work is a little challenging to adapt to the screen. So I'd love you to talk about what you thought of the Scorsese adaptation. And secondly, do you think Wharton's work is hard to adapt to the screen? Why don't we have more Wharton films? So so I have to confess, <laughs> I actually saw the film before I read the novel. <laughs> and and, and uh, I think it's, it's like the novel, a masterpiece. I really do. I, I thought that it's quite remarkable that Scorsese, who's known for these very violent taxi driver, you know, narratives of New York, is drawn to this, to this novel. But it makes perfect sense. And, and when, I, when I teach the novel, I playfully call it The Gangs of Old New York, right? As a riff on his film, The Gangs of New York. I do, to your question, I, I do think it's a challenge. And Edith Wharton was famously distrustful of film. And there's a wonderful article by Donna Campbell in the Bloomsbury Handbook to Edith Wharton uh, that is really a brilliant overview of Edith Wharton's relationship to film and, again, her sort of wariness. Uh, around it, I, I just think that it was a new medium, and and you know she, you know she, I think that she would have come to appreciate it. I don't think that every adaptation succeeds in the way that Scorsese's does. And again, I'm going to go go out and say that I really think it's the finest adaptation of any novel I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, and and I tell students when I teach with the film, I tell them, okay, heads up, you know, 
deliberately he chose to let Winona Ryder, you know, keep her dark hair, where in the novel it's important to remember that Mae Welland is the the fair, you know, the blonde, you know, the, the innocent. And Eleanor Lenska, and by the way, Michelle Pfeiffer has just earned my love always for her portrayal of Ellen Olenska and Scorsese, you know, allowed her to keep her hair color and and didn't, you know, didn't switch it up. And that's fine. I think it's a masterpiece. And there's a wonderful moment. A lot of our listeners will, I think, know Ted Lasso. And I think it's season one where Ted Lasso gets up and he talks about how, you know, Scorsese, you know, finally won the Oscar for The Departed. But he's like, but we all know, you know, he should have won for, I think he says, Goodfellas. And then, then people all chime in and one person rightfully says The Age of Innocence. And I, I think it's 100% Oscar worthy for everything, not just costumes. I believe it, it won perhaps only for costumes. And I think I think it's a masterpiece, and I know I keep using that word. But. Well, I would agree with you. I mean, it's an incredibly faithful adaptation for all the, the important points, shall we say. One of the things I've always felt about Wharton in terms of looking at her work to be adapted to the screen is she's very hard to edit, right? And Age of Innocence is in many ways a tighter work, I think, because it comes later in the canon. But when you look at something like, well, House of Mirth and the Terrence Davies adaptation, which came later than The Age of Innocence, it's a beautiful film to look at. But it's challenging because so much is cut, so much is inferred. My opinion is you really have to know the novel to understand what's going on there. Yes, And then you look at something like The Custom of the Country, which I would dearly love to see an adaptation of. That's an incredibly long, involved, complex... Now, it would probably make, today, in our world of miniseries, it would probably make a good miniseries. But do you know what I mean? I Do you agree that she's hard to edit, which may be a problem translating her for the screen? I do agree. Um, I also think that that often what is lost is the interior consciousness. And that's one of the reasons that the Scorsese film really succeeds. One of the many reasons you have this wonderful Joanne Woodward, uh, you know, voiceover, and she's almost embracing the voice of Edith Wharton. It certainly lines right out of the narration and it's pitch perfect. And to your point, I, I do, I love Gillian Anderson's performance as Lily Bart in The House of Mirth. I do... I was sad that Gertie Farish was eliminated from that narrative because she is so important to the novel The House of Mirth. And I was sorry that the tableau vivant was changed because that is really one of the most important scenes in all of Warden's fiction. But I agree um, with your point. She is she's hard to take on and it's it's just a formidable task. Before we leave the film adaptation concept. I, I want to ask you here. So Scorsese has actually been quoted as saying that Age of Innocence was, quote, the most violent film I ever made. And you alluded to a little bit of that a couple of minutes ago, but what did he mean by that? And how do you feel about that? Well, I love that comment. And I, I know what you're speaking of. And I've, I there's a wonderful documentary that's available on YouTube where he says that. He suggests that it's the most violent film he ever made. I mean, I respectfully don't I mean there's no bloodshed but there's social violence and and I love what he says when he follows up on that and he says he's like okay the disclaimer is I don't come from that world but he of course comes from New York and he tells the New York story but he he does say um sort of analogous to the the sort of uh mafioso narrative 
If somebody's going to be taken out, they're taken out. And that's, of course, what happens to Ellen Olenska. And so um, she's excommunicated. She's expelled from the sacred cloistered community of old New York. But but there's, you know, there there are no, you know, horses heads and, you know, <laughs> in master beds, thank goodness. No, but I think the interesting point that will surprise people is the emotional violence and what went on below the surface illustrates so much of what Wharton was trying to tell us about the Gilded Age as we think it's the beautiful dresses and the mansions and all the food and all of that. But under it, it was very cutthroat. It mm-hmm. was extremely violent. And you could be, as we see with Elna Lenska, completely expelled out of the society. We even see it with Lily Bart in, mm-hmm. in House of Mirth, right? Yes. So I'd like to discuss the three main characters in Age of Innocence, take a little visit with each one of them, uh, Ellen Olenska, May Welland, and Newland Archer. So let's start with Ellen Olenska. Um, she is my favorite. And it's it's arguably her arrival back in New York from her time away in Europe that really propels a lot of the story here. So, Emily, can you just give us an overview of just who Ellen Olenska is? I wanted to say that on the on the matter of Ellen Olenska, I, I, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's performance really, to my mind, was Oscar worthy in her ad, the adaptation of *The Age of Innocence*. But Ellen Olenska is probably my favorite literary heroine, uh, and I said as much in my PhD examination. Um, and I also think she's the most like Edith Wharton of anyone that Edith Wharton ever created. She shares so much with Edith Wharton. She's Europeanized. She spent a lot of too much time, right, overseas. She's come back to New York. She's artistic. She embraces artists. She embraces the premise of a salon in the same way Edith Wharton did. Edith Wharton always entertained, you know, magnificently in the afternoons. Of course, after her after her period of, of, of private writing every morning, Ellen Olenska, she lives in the same neighborhood in Paris that Edith Wharton lives in um, at the end of the novel. She smokes, as Edith Wharton did. It's not a well-known fact, but she did very discreetly. She is a realist in the way that Edith Wharton is. And one of the most meaningful to me scenes in the whole book is when she tells Newland Archer to basically disabuse himself of his romantic visions. Uh, And she famously says, uh, you know, we're going to sit right here and we're going to look not at visions, but at realities. And I think that that's Edith Wharton's uh, whole um, sort of that like that that's her philosophy for fiction. She will never give you the Jane Austen ending. She will always give you the Edith Wharton realistic, you know, and truthful ending. Ellen Olenska faces a lot of the same distrust that Edith Wharton did. We are told early on that old New York is, quote, distrustful and afraid, end quote, of Ellen Olenska. And this is a culture that dreads scandal more than disease. That's another direct quote. Edith Wharton felt that as well. I mean, there's a reason she left the United States and she got a French divorce, which was very, you know, had she gotten a New York divorce, it would have been all over the papers and it would have been such a scandal. And so I think it's also, it's just important to kind of think of Ellen Olenska as a, as a kind of alter ego, not precise, but she certainly echoes Edith Wharton in so many meaningful ways. How do you feel the character of Ellen Olenska functions in the novel? What is her role as a character? Well, here's something that we're probably going to invariably get to is, you know, who's the most innocent in this book? And that question comes up when I'm teaching this novel. 
I would suggest that Eleanor Lenska is. <laughs> and I mean, Mae Welland is not innocent. <laughs> Mae Welland knows exactly what's going on, and she has to work within the, you know, the hieroglyphics, to use Edith Wharton's word, of old New York. She has to work within a limited set of codes, and she has to use her her role as a as a wife and and a, a an eventual mother to get rid of Eleanor Lenska, and you know, and she pulls it off masterfully. Eleanor Lenska comes back and thinks, oh, these people are so nice, and I'm paraphrasing. But she's really wrong. <laughs> like, she doesn't realize that she's on trial from the moment that we see her up in the opera box in the first scene of the novel. But to your question of how does she function, and well, she's a temptation for Newland Archer. She represents, and this is another direct quote, she is to him the composite vision. Ellen Olenska is to Newland Archer and I quote, the composite vision of all that he had missed, right? She becomes to him like an imaginary beloved in a book or a picture. That's another quotation from Wharton. But that's, she didn't ask for that. <laughs> that's an important detail. She's just living her life and she just wants to be around, you know, good art and good conversation and, um, and thinkers and writers and intellectuals and people who who want her around. And so she has to kind of gravitate towards people who will tolerate her even though she's kind of like the black sheep from the moment that she enters the novel she's she's likened to a, the black sheep of the family and what a perfect segue into a little look at may welland because you said a couple of minutes ago that she is not as innocent as she seems and she appears to be the the dutiful daughter the dutiful wife can you lay out a little bit about who may welland is and how she contrasts to ellen for sure. I find her increasingly fascinating with each reread or reteach of this novel. I do think that Mae Welland embodies what Edith Wharton was supposed to be, right? She was supposed to be the good wife, the good hostess, you know, the best dressed woman in New York, the good mother, all of these things. And, you know, of course, Mae becomes that. But I think it's really important, you know, to kind of to watch her eyes <laughs> in the novel and in Winona Ryder's brilliant performance on film. She really knows exactly what's going on. She understands the romantic tension between her fiancé and eventual husband, Newland Archer, and her cousin, Ellen Olenska. Everything she does seems to be calculated. And yet, Newland Archer, again, not a good reader, is continually asking us to trust his readings of May as unimaginary, not creative, sort of a blank slate, and almost like an automaton, when in fact, she is one of the smartest persons in the novel, and she works the system, and she weaponizes her pregnancy to get Ellen Olenska out of Dodge, so to speak. At this point, I really would like to ask you about the title, because that relates to a lot of what we've just been talking about. So the Age of Innocence. Emily, what does that really mean? And you've answered a bit of this. Are these characters really so innocent at all? 
Yeah, so I love the title, uh, and you know, it's it's raised a lot of questions. My understanding has always been that it's taken from a painting by Sir Joshua Reynolds, who again was very important to Edith Wharton's body of work. I mentioned briefly the Tableau Vivant and the House of Mirth. Arguably, the centerpiece of that novel is when the protagonist Lily Bart embodies uh, a famous portrait of Joanna Lloyd by Sir Joshua Reynolds. So in this case, it's a lovely profile of a young girl with a bonnet, and she's embracing, you know, this theme of innocence. And, you know, I I really think that Mae Welland is presented to us as possibly this picture of innocence. But again, any good reader knows she's she's anything but, but she has to feign it because good young women were not supposed to be uh, women of experience. I think that Newland Archer also has some naivete in him. I think I think that he fancies himself a real, you know, ally to women and women's rights. And he famously says, you know, women ought to be free, you know, as free as we are. I don't think he really believes it, though. <laughs> so I, I would say that the, the title is very apt, and the portrait of innocence, you know, represented in the Sir Joshua Reynolds image, it just also reminds us how important visual art is to Edith Wharton, and it's all over the pages of this novel and, again, all over the scenes of Scorsese's film. So certainly the message to listeners in reading The Age of Innocence is, be wary of anyone who seems so innocent. Perhaps they are not. So as the final piece of our trio here, let's talk a little bit about Newland Archer. And you've mentioned several of his qualities as we've discussed the other two women. But in general, who is he? And does he grow at all as a character? What do you think? So it's a really wonderful question. Who is he? (laughs) He's a product of old New York. He's literally and metaphorically married to convention. He would have us believe that he's very worldly, very modern, but to quote the narrator, he is, quote, held fast by habit, end quote. Newland Archer's sort of status as someone who's surprisingly old-fashioned is signaled even by the furniture that he has in his in his private library, he clings to this East Lake writing table, which is, by the way, a kind of furniture that Edith Wharton did not approve of. She thought of it as as old old fashioned. He is a dilettante. We we hear that by the second page of the novel, and that is not really something that Edith Wharton would have admired. That's a cursory knowledge of arts and letters. He's certainly contemplative. He's fundamentally passive, and he's passive right up to that final scene, which is why I think it's a consummate ending, that he has to remain on the park bench outside of Eleanor Lenska's apartment in Paris, even though he's free now. And he always said, hey, if I was only free and if May might die, I could have my shot with Eleanor Lenska. He is very Jamesian insofar as he is the man to whom nothing was ever to happen, and that's a line from Wharton. And God bless him. He's human. (laughs) He's human. Yeah, but it's interesting when you think about it, the two women, May and, and Ellen, actually, they do far more. They have far more strength. They have far more control in various ways. Mm -hmm. And Newland, at the end, is the one that perhaps has the least and is the most constrained. Do you agree with that? I would very much agree with that. And I would also underscore that the two women really read him 
so much better than he can read himself and far better than he reads either of them. He's constantly misreading May and undermining her. Even after she's dead, he still reads her as a simpleton. And it's like, not really, buddy. <laughs> and he's he's always misreading Ellen Olenska. And she's much savvier. She understands. She's been around the block. And she knows that this pipe dream that he has is is never going to materialize. And so with that, Emily and I are going to take a brief break, but we'll come back because there is so much more to say. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today I'm with Dr. Emily Orlando, and we are taking a deep dive into Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. Emily, I'd like to really take a look at one particular key scene in the novel. We've talked about some of the characters, but I'd like to look at a scene here. And towards the end of the novel, it's the dinner party scene that Newland Archer and May now Archer, uh, Newland and May give. It's their first dinner party. And it's really essentially Ellen's farewell to New York. She's returning to Europe. But it's a really important scene, both from what Wharton tells us and what's going on beneath the surface. So can you talk a little bit about that scene? What do we see and what is she saying? Sure. It's presented as the farewell dinner for the Countess Olenska. Archer, as he often is, is is a little bit confused about what exactly is going on. And we might say that Ellen Olenska is on the menu, right? (laughs) And uh, it's so brilliant the way that Edith Wharton describes this scene. It's called a handsome send-off. The people about the table are described as, quote, the embodied image of the family, and the family is 
capital F, initial capital. And that makes me think of, you know, Scorsese's other narratives. It's described as the tribal rally around a kinswoman about to be eliminated from the tribe. I mean, how perfect is that, right? And Edith Wharton, anyone who knows uh, her, her work knows that she was drawn to anthropology. And this is in so many ways an anthropological study of old New York. What's, what's remarkable is that unbeknownst to our dear Newland Archer, something has happened privately behind the scenes to compel Ellen Olenska to leave. And we alluded to it earlier, which is that May Welland had what she calls a really good talk with her dear cousin, Ellen Olenska, during which she disclosed that she was expecting a child when, in fact, she wasn't certain, right? So, again, she uses that as as an excuse to shut down any affair that was really about to happen between Newland and Ellen. What's really almost painful in this scene is that Newland tries to get some FaceTime with Alan Olenska, right, at the end of this dinner. And, and you know, and he's like, oh, you know, I'd love to come see you in Paris. And Hermione Lee, Edith Wharton's most recent biographer, wonderfully notes that Paris is so important to this novel. It's the last word that he ever articulates to Alan Olenska. But she comes back with not what he wanted to hear. And she says, oh, yes, if you and May should come. And he doesn't want to hear that. So, um, and it's all because because of, you know, the, the machinations behind the scene to eliminate her from the tribe. Now, Emily, I'd like, we've talked a little bit about the opening of the book. We've talked about the title. Now for just a moment, I'd like to address the ending. And you've alluded to it a couple of times in our chat, but I'd like to talk about it in in generalities. Let's just say that Edith Wharton was no Jane Austen, right? Yes. In the sense that mm-hmm. the, the the guy doesn't always get the girl. In fact, most of the time he doesn't get the girl. There there's a lot of ambiguity. There are endings that are open to interpretation. Do you think that's accurate? And do you have any comments in general about a Wharton ending? Yes. Well, I really do think that in in this case, it is perfect closure. And I think that Newland Archer is a beautifully drawn character. And I think it would not be in keeping for him to ascend the staircase. It would be inconsistent with the character that Edith Warden has created. And I know I know what you're saying, and I, and I, I agree with what you're saying, and, and particularly, goodness, the House of Mirth ending, there's so much ambiguity there. And in this case, I, I really think she knew where it was going. And, and certainly, if you look at the manuscripts, yes, she, in her notes, she tested out all kinds of alternative endings, one that actually involved them running off together. But this is the one she decided on. And it's just, it's perfect because it honors her code of symmetry, order, closure. And again, it's all laid out. Um, I mean, the opening scene of the novel is is the opera. And, you know, it's probably most famous one of the time. And it's uh, it's Faust. And, you know, Newland Archer is certainly Faustian and his desires and his appetites. But he never really can follow through. And he's late to the opera (laughs) because it's a thing to do. Again, married to convention and to fashion. So I I do think it's it's a really perfect ending to this story. And it's perfect that we don't, 
you know, we don't see Elena Lensko. We just kind of have to imagine what she looks like now. She's in her late 50s. He imagines her, but he doesn't see her, and Edith Wharton doesn't show her to us. Oh, I think it's an absolutely perfect ending, but it's not the ending that either some of the characters or us may have expected at the beginning. That's what I meant about the ambiguity, right? Oh, agree, yeah. So, Emily, as we finish up here, and gosh, there are so many different aspects and angles and subjects that we can talk about, and and I I hope we will be able to, to do that one day. I have to ask you the classic trademark Gilded Gentleman question, and that, of course, is if Edith Wharton were sitting here right at the table with us what would you most want to ask her? Reading her letters, you can see that she enjoyed a good story and she enjoyed gossip. So I think that what I would want to do is I would want to ask her about our contemporary moment, right? And did she anticipate, as I suspect she did, you know, this kind of Instagram influencer culture? Did she imagine and I say this tongue-in-cheek, that Elmer Moffat might one day rise to power. You know, did you imagine that a divorcee could now be the Queen of England? <laughs> there, so I feel like I'd like to gossip with her. That's what I would like to do. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I think she would have so much to say. And I think she did see it coming. I think she anticipated it in uh, one of her greatest novels, which is The Custom of the Country. I think she really sees contemporary culture and um, our current, let's say, gilded age. I, I think she saw that coming. But I'd also, I'd really just want to say thank you. That's what I, That's what I would want to say. Thank you, because I don't think I would have a career without her. What would you most like her to ask you? Oh, my goodness. Oh, um, hmm. Okay. That's a wonderful question. And I, I guess I would like for her to ask me to persuade her why feminism has done good things for American women. <laughs> because, of course, she would have dismissed that label, and she did. And she said some unfortunate things about university women, and I happen to be a university woman. I think that we could have a very fruitful conversation, <laughs> um, and I think that we might find some common ground. Because really, even though she didn't like the label, she is fiercely committed to the social construction of womanhood and basically everything she ever published, in my view. So I think that could be a fruitful discussion. And I would love to be there for that chat, I have to tell you. Emily, thank you so, so much for joining me here today to delve into the world of not only the Age of Innocence, but gosh, we've looked at Edith Wharton from so many different aspects and angles, too. And it's certainly my hope that listeners will, if you have read Age of Innocence, please go read it again and listening to the conversation Emily and I had. And if you haven't read it yet, then it's a place to to start. Emily, thank you so much. Please come back on the show. Will you come back? Oh, Carl, it would be my joy. And thank you. This has been an absolute delight. <laughs> well, for me too. 
So thank you so, so much. And my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Karen Gannon. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support helps with the cost of research and production to continue to be able to do the show. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.